are listening to The Currency Welcome. I'm your host, Mike Gaston. I'm a brand and marketing strategist. And today I am joined by John Schlaff. John is an executive professor at the University of Rochester Simon School of Business. He's a growth professional at heart, 25 years of marketing and product leadership experience across a diverse number of companies and industries. Uh, he has had executive roles that include strategy, marketing, product management, general management, and new business development. He's launched over 50 new products and businesses. And today we're going to be talking about product management and why that's so hot. So John, welcome to The Currency. Mike, it's great to be with you on the, on the show. So John, before we jump into product management and why it's so hot, why it's becoming, why product is so important in, in today's economy and society, tell us a little bit about your background and what you do at the University of Rochester. Sure, Mike. So I'm really a business guy. You know, I was in the business world working for different organizations, typically uh, pretty big corporations. And I had the opportunity to work uh, both domestically as well as internationally. Uh, And I worked across a variety of marketing and product centric uh, functions. Uh, So I, I enjoyed really all of them, you know, strategy, you're looking at the long-term product management. It's kind of a little bit the midterm, a traditional marketing, a little bit shorter term. Uh, so it was, it was really exciting to, to be able to taste all of those and, and then to add in things like uh, ideating and incubating uh, new businesses inside of corporations. Um, so uh, spent 25 years doing that. And in the product world, I did what we call a pivot, so I, I thought, uh, there's something else to do here. And, and about five years ago, I started teaching at the Simon Business School. Uh, and I love it. It's been a great change. I teach both undergrads and grads. And I focus on uh, marketing-related topics and, and probably most specifically product-related topics. We just, at the graduate level, launched a concentration for our MBAs in product management. And it's one of the only programs in the country like that, uh, and pretty excited to, to get that going and to see the students kind of channel into that area of focus. So product is, is growing. It's becoming uh, obviously important if you know, the higher learning institutions are taking a look and saying, let's concentrate on that. What does product mean to, for the average person, you know, even a lot of marketers, like we know what a product is, but we don't get involved in product, product management. Can you just describe a little bit about what we mean when we talk about product? Sure, Mike. So first of all, a product might be, you know, something physical that you can touch and you can pick up. You know, I'm holding my my mobile phone right now, maybe, right? Uh, but a product can also be a service. And most offerings, in fact, kind of sit on this spectrum somewhere between a pure product, maybe a bar of soap, right, to a pure service, maybe a a doctor's visit. Uh, And product can be uh, anywhere along that spectrum. And and I guess when I think of product, I think of an offering that better be delivering value both to the marketplace – as well as to the organization that is, you know, the sponsor of that product. And, and that's essentially one of the things that, that uh, re- is required for a product to be successful. You know, how can you deliver value to both your target market as well as your organization? Sure. 
And when we talk about, and I'm, I'm glad that you talked about the fact that a product doesn't have to be a physical artifact, that it can be something digital. We, <laughs> I mean, the world we're living in, we're interacting with so many digital products, uh, and we tend to differentiate between products and services, but really a service uh, can and should be a product as well. So sure. I, I appreciate that that paradigm. But when we talk about products in general and companies, entrepreneurship, business, you know, we dial in what is product management? I mean, uh, you know, and I'll just play like the, I'll play the, the, uh, um, not the devil's advocate, but I'll play the fool. And I'll just say, well, don't companies just like, you know, offer services and make things. What does product management entail? Sure. So product management is all about, and, and there's really a big range, Mike, uh, and different product management roles can vary. But the role that I always played and, and managed uh, was really starting at the, the ideation of a new concept that might make sense in the market and it might make sense for the organization I was with. And then to kind of germinate that idea and move it forward through a series of steps that was validating the sense and the, and, and, and the capability of that potential offering delivering value to the market and to the organization and, and kind of moving that through its development phase up into the phase of, wow, we've got something now. It's been validated in the marketplace. It looks solid uh, for us. It's, it's uh, tapping into some of our core competencies to hopefully create some differentiation in the marketplace. And, and then we launch it. Uh, and then after launch, that product and or product line needs to be managed. You know, how is it performing in the marketplace? Is it uh, delivering the right kind of financial uh, metrics that that we really set forth and that that are required for this to be viewed as successful uh, to the organization? Is it being viewed as successful in the market? Are we are we gaining share and the kind of share that uh, really represents a successful product in the market? So there's a broad array of stages that you you work through in the product world uh, and some product managers focus on maybe the technical side of ideation to launch and there are other product managers that maybe will focus on uh, what's happening in the field and, and have we optimized uh, the, the role that we can play with this offering in the market uh, and then some you know are kind of full-blown product managers that work across all of that. So there's a there's a great spectrum of activities that that product folks uh, touch. I'm I'm interested in and you've been in a number of companies that have gone through this process multiple times. You've led this. You're teaching it now at the university level. I'm interested in what that validation process looks like. I, I kind of get the ideation a little bit. You know, we all either have ideas or we have maybe a family member that always has some new idea that they're excited about. So we know what coming up with ideas looks like. And I know that can vary. How do you, how do you figure out this value piece for the market? It's one thing for me to say, I've got a great idea and I want to pursue it. What are companies doing these days to make sure that the idea is worth pursuing? You know, it's funny. I'm smiling, Mike, because uh, so often individuals or maybe organizations will think, hey, I've got this great idea. Let's let's uh, build it and take it to market. Uh, and unfortunately, um, 
the biggest reason why products fail in the marketplace is in fact because there is no market. So what we have to do in the product world is we have to start very early in terms of validating um, elements uh, that must be true for this offering to be successful. So uh, I work with different tool sets. One I, I use a lot with the students comes from an organization called Strategizer, and it's uh, the organization that that is uh, probably best known for the business model canvas. It's a tool that has been pretty hot over the last five years in terms of assessing business opportunities and new product opportunities. And there's an associated product called the Value Proposition Canvas. And I use these tools with the students, uh, and, it, and it really helps, both of them really help identify those hypotheses that must be true for your idea to make sense. Uh, so part of what uh, we do is we identify what these critical hypotheses are and we prioritize them, and then we begin to test them. And we test them in the marketplace. And, and you can begin this process extremely early. In fact, you should be. Uh, the vast majority of your rapid testing should be very early. And this is the stage where you're really bouncing around a lot. You're testing to grab a learning. So you establish a hypothesis. You go out and test it. Hopefully, your test is going to generate an insight that will inform you, you know, how to further tune that concept or tune that idea. Uh, so um, there's a lot of methods to go out and test as well. You know, it might be as, as simple as going out and speaking to prospective uh, users of your offer uh, and gaining their feedback. It might be more ethnographic observation of how they're operating today in this space that you're interested in. Uh, you can do surveys. You can build digital prototypes to represent a concept and seek feedback. So there's a lot of methods sure. to test. But what's critical is to, to be in that uh, testing mode early. And, and why do you want to be in an early? I mean, there's the obvious just to avoid going down the wrong path. But is, are there other benefits to being as early as possible testing? Yeah, you want to fail fast, Mike. I mean, that's that's where you... You learn and shift and adjust. If you delay your testing until you've invested pretty heavy in this new concept, then if it if it uh, doesn't come to be, some of your critical hypotheses don't make it in the real world, then you've sunk in uh, a lot of time and energy and potentially money. So the early tests should be those that are the biggest ones that that really must be true for this idea to work, and those that are easy and quick to test as well. Uh, so the the more you uh, can test and learn and grab insights early on, um, prior to big investments, the better. And as you're validating and shaping your concept, and it's becoming more real and more potentially concrete then you can begin to invest a little bit more in that concept uh, and, and your testing might be a little bit more rigorous at that stage. So there's a relationship between, you know, uh, what you test, how you test, and when you test. Uh, you know, one of the things I like about what you're saying, we're talking about validation. I, it's so easy to get focused on what we think. We get our 
team around a table and we all kind of give our opinions on things. You're t- all the testing you're talking about is testing with the market, you know, talking to people, showing them concepts, ethnographic research, uh, surveys. This is all getting out to potential customers in the marketplace and getting their input early, early on before you commit to anything. And I think that's a really uh, powerful approach. And sadly, I don't, I mean, I'd like to know what you think, but I don't see that applied as much as maybe it should be. You know, I don't think it is, Mike, and uh, I think there's more push towards it now. And that doesn't mean you don't need to be testing other elements. But one of the things that's pretty interesting about the product world is, you know, you're touching an amazing array of of concepts and, and elements. And uh, there's a phrase that says, you know what, there's, there's a lot of people in the building that understand your technology. Uh, but you as the product person have to be the person that truly understands the market. You know, what what is the specific segment you're going after? Are you being very definitive about who you're going to serve? And do you truly understand the jobs that they need to get done and the pains and gains that that they are either experiencing today or could experience if you could improve their situation, you know, relative to that that concept and that offer. You know, I think of some of the things you're talking about here. I think of the company IDEO and they, you know, popularized this concept of design thinking. How much does what you're talking about align with design thinking? It does. It seems to me it's more than design thinking, but is it, is there a kind of a sympathy or an alignment with design thinking in this approach? Absolutely. And I, I bring in design uh, thinking uh, concepts into multiple classes that I teach. And, and design thinking is a, a very specific uh, method to understand um, what's going on with your, your target market. You know, it's kind of human-centered design, and there are very specific processes associated with it. And IDEO, for sure, is is amazing when it comes to design thinking, which is, by nature, um, very centric to empathy. Do you truly understand and can you walk in your customer's uh, shoes? So it's um, uh, an important concept that is relayed to the broader topic that we're talking about. But at the same time, you've got to be testing elements of your technology. You've got to be testing, is your manufacturing ready if it's a hardware-related product? You've got to be testing whether or not um, the costs that you've put into your business case, you know, really are true. Can you source those components from your suppliers at the rates that make sense? So um, testing is really across your entire business model. But I, I usually spend a lot of time with the students focusing on testing in the market because, again, that's where the majority of products fail because simply there's no market need, amazingly, uh, as that might sound. I was speaking with somebody yesterday uh, about a, a an idea I have for my consultancy. I, I consult with clients. I've kind of identified a niche, I think, that I could focus on. And I've had a couple of people say to me, wow, that's really exciting. And, and as you're explaining it, I don't, I don't think anybody else is doing that. And, you know, when I hear that as a marketer, I feel two feelings. One is, oh, goodness, this could be a blue ocean. This could be an area that I could, you know, kind of have some freedom to dominate and build and uh, can, and be first. And the other thought I have is, well, there may be a reason no one's doing this. It may be that nobody wants it. And uh, that, you know, that gives me pause. So I really appreciate that uh, not every idea 
uh, necessarily has a market. And this idea of validating is so important. Have you often found going, or have you ever found going through this process that maybe in the validation process, maybe the idea as it initially was uh, hatched wasn't good, but that it gave you an opportunity to modify or, or pivot, as you said earlier, and come up, like, did you gain insights, I guess, from this validation that changed the product? Oh, my, that that is the process. It, it's funny. I'm laughing to myself, thinking, "Oh my gosh, did it happen once? It's happened, you know, like, hundreds and when hundreds." When has it of not times. happened? Yeah, it, yeah. That that is the process. You know, um, it's strategizer has something they call the strategizer squiggle, right? And it's this this. I'm, I'm kind of drawing it in the air right now. It's you're all over the place early on, and it's up and down and left and right. And and hopefully as you move through time from left to right visually in your mind's eye, right, that squiggle is getting a little bit tighter and a little bit tighter in your, and you're dialing in your concept. And, um, you know, as you test, you, you either validate a hypothesis or you invalidate it or you come to the conclusion that you've got to test more. And, okay. and ultimately, what you're looking for are those insights. Sure. Well, you know, I want to talk for a minute. I, you know, I, I could imagine someone listening saying, okay, product, I, I don't really resonate with product. We, we think in terms of, well, I'm a marketing guy, you know, I'm, uh, I'm, a, I'm an accounting gal. You know, we all have these kind of different ideas based on the tactical things we do. What is the makeup of a product team? What kinds of functions and skill sets? Not so many roles like, hey, you got to have a creative director, but like what kinds of uh, skills and functions are coming to the table to make a successful product team? Mike, that's a great question. And it's and it's one of the aspects that I found um, most rewarding working in the product field is it, the field itself is amazingly diverse. And, you know, we used to run uh, product team meetings. Um, maybe once a week, maybe every other week, depending on where you were in the process of ideation through development into launch and so on. And uh, let's say you're you're holding a one-hour meeting and the product person usually kind of chairs that meeting. You walk into the room and um, as you look around, uh, it's stunning. You've got people from accounting because, uh, gee, you better get the chart of accounts right so the, the funds can flow a- accordingly. Uh, there's somebody from... Uh, supply chain uh, to make sure that the pieces parts are going to are going to come into uh, uh, to the manufacturing plant when needed. Uh, there's probably somebody from manufacturing there, and this is now a hardware product. It might, it'd be a little bit different for software, but you know the concept applies. Um, there's somebody from finance that's interested in hey, are you going to really hit the margins that uh, you put forth in the business case, and how are you going to price to ensure that? Uh, there's somebody from marketing that's there to to better understand how are we going to position this in the marketplace to ensure success. Uh, there might be somebody from legal there because there could be contractual issues that you have to work through. Uh, could be someone that's representing a partner that is central to maybe your channel. So what's amazing uh, is that all of these individuals work for a function and functions, you know, kind of do what the function does. And there's certain things that will optimize life within the function. But oftentimes, if you optimize for function A, it might sub-optimize for function B. So as the product person, you have to work across this real diverse group of individuals with different motivations. And you've got to get that team kind of aligned 
uh, towards that forward position that you need to have and all marching together to bring this product to market. Uh, and uh, it's funny, I, I, I think about it a lot. They shouldn't call it product management because none of these folks work for you. Uh, you mm. can't tell them what to do. They should you're really managing. Y- yeah. yeah, they should call it product leadership because it's the only way you're going to get this diverse group uh, marching forward in unison to to drive success on, on the product that is really your baby, right? I would imagine in every company they've got different cultures, and so some cultures are more friendly with collaborating. Some cultures are probably more hostile to it, and that's going to determine success or failure in these teams, these cross-functional teams. But is there kind of an approach that that a product manager can take to get everybody on the same page? I mean, uh, is it just a lot of politicking and wheeling and dealing? Is this like working a, a bill through Congress or... Uh, is there an approach that product managers take that, that's, that's successful in getting a team to work like this? Well, Mike, what I always tried to do and what I always coached my product managers to do is to really spend the time and the energy to understand each individual at the table and what was really important to them and their function. Uh, and if you can really understand what the needs are from all the folks at the table, you can begin to, you know, find paths that will optimize the situation across all the functions. And ultimately, that's what you want in your business, right? Your business wants the most effective and efficient path forward to to bring an offer to market that's going to generate revenues and, and margins for the company. So a, a lot of listening, a lot of empathy, a lot of understanding what different parties need. And, and it's funny, those are some of the skills you need to, to understand what's going on in the marketplace as well, right? Sure. You know, sure. I did strategic alliances for a while and and I always worked almost as hard to try to understand how I could get my partner to win as to how I could win myself. Because once you understand where all the wins are, then you can begin to shape something forward that has staying power and, and has real value for both parties and hopefully whoever you're going to go out and serve as a strategic alliance. So that concept of win-win is really important in the product world. Yeah, I like that. I mean, you've got all these functions coming to the table and, it, you know, it depends on the individual. Some professionals, they understand when they come to the table, the bigger picture. But if you're a function-oriented person, you're thinking, well, we always have a problem in accounting because marketing doesn't want to justify their spend. You know, they're, they're, they're just these, these kind of dynamics that show up. And um, if you can help recontextualize for the team that there's a higher good, that we're all pulling in the same direction, and that everybody, there's some give and take. Uh, it's really not about winning for the accounting team. It's how do we win for the company? What's my contribution? That's got to be powerful. Yeah, and in the process, hopefully what you're doing is you're you're kind of helping all of the different parties understand their impact on the business and their impact on other functions. In, in, in general, you know, I'm a believer in people, right? Everybody wants to do well and, and support uh, others, right? So some of it's just simply education. Oh, when I do it that way, it's, it presents a challenge for you. You know what? I can probably do it another way. Um, Well, and that goes right back to what you're saying about the validation, the marketplace, because you're doing the exact same thing in the marketplace. You're showing a potential, 
uh, market, hey, this is something we're thinking about. And they go, yeah, but I don't, I never hold that in my left hand. I'm always, you know, I'm always grabbing it with my right hand from my back pocket. Oh, well, we could change that. You know, you get those kinds of insights and then everybody's happy. Yeah, yeah. And, and it, it's so much fun, uh, those sorts of uh, interactions, because you can learn so much. You know, you, you ask the follow-on questions of, well, why do you hold it with your left hand? And if your right hand's in your back pocket, is there a reason and, and why is that important? And right. tell me more and, you know, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And then they're like, well, I, I don't want to do it that way, but I'm forced to because, you know, right. It's just this wonderful. It's exciting to have these kinds of insights, isn't it? Uh, just to have a discovery. And sometimes I find it's the simplest, funniest little thing that we just all assume or we just accept, well, this, this is the way it is. And when you start asking the questions, it's amazing what opens up. Right. Right. Yeah. So this team, what, what, what kind of person, and I understand, you know, these product teams can be very big so that we're talking about an individual over, you know, working with some functions, but this could be uh, exponentially larger, but what's, what's a product person, this product manager, what kind of person is this? What traits do they have? What experiences, skills are they bringing to the table typically? Yeah. So um, one of the things that that I think is absolutely essential is every product person needs to have a keen interest in the marketplace. They they really have to have that burning desire to understand what's going on and how can I serve that. Another attribute that uh, is a little more nebulous is the ability to see patterns, because you're you're working across you know, such a broad array of either concepts and ideas in the marketplace or, you know, the breadth of, of things that we were talking about with cross-functional teams. You have to be able to see patterns through all of that uh, and, and then shape your offering and your execution and so on to address the broader patterns, not the one squeaky wheel, maybe. So I think that's important. McKinsey did a study once, uh, and they came up with five, six concepts uh, that product managers either need to be kind of best in class in one, two, or three of these, and at, and at least um, good or capable in all of them. And they start with a customer. You know, are you someone that is able to um, kind of understand the workflow and the customer journey and and what they're going through? They have to be good at um, understanding what's happening in the market, which is really a broader uh, external exploration. It might be technological trends or it might be uh, dynamics in government regulations, as an example. Uh, need to be good in business because you're responsible. Typically, most product roles, you're responsible for the business performance of that offering. Technology and, and technical skills is really important, especially if, if you're spending uh, a lot of your time on the ideation through development and into launch stage. You have to be able to, you know, demonstrate some credibility with the, the folks that are literally building the offering for you. And then two that are sometimes missed, Mike, are the soft skills. And we've been talking about that a little bit, right? How do you how do you lead a group of diverse individuals and how do you listen and hear what is really going on in the market? Uh, so that's the fifth. And the, and the last is 
uh, enabler. You really need to be an individual that can pull the creativity and innovation uh, out of others uh, and one that really loves a learning environment. So those are six different characteristics uh, that McKinsey has kind of nailed down uh, and suggested are really important in terms of, you know, what product managers have to be good at. My guest today is John Schloff. He is an executive professor at uh, the University of Rochester Simon School of Business. We'll be right back in just a moment with more on product management with John Schloff. Folks, I hope you're enjoying today's interview. I have so much fun putting these podcast episodes together. It's such an honor to interview these folks, to learn from them, and to put this content out there. Look, if you like things that are marketing and branding related, if you want to become a better marketer, learn how to drive significant revenue through your marketing efforts to transform your brand into a real strategic asset, then I want to encourage you to go over to my website and sign up for my newsletter. The website is mikegaston.com. That's M-I-K-E-G-A-S-T-I-N. Com. Just scroll to the bottom of the page and there's a little sign up form right there. You'll never get any spam. I will never sell your information. But what I will do, I will send you an email once a week with the new content that I've created. I put out videos about branding and marketing. I write articles about branding and marketing. And as you know, I create this podcast. So sign up today, get in the system and learn more about branding and marketing. Become a better marketer. Guys, thank you so much. Let's get back to today's interview. And we're back. My guest today is John Schloff, Executive Professor at the University of Rochester Simon School of Business. And uh, if you'd like to get in touch with John, you can do so. Look for him on LinkedIn. I'll spell his name for you. I'll also put a link in the show notes. Uh, But his name is John, J-O-H-N. Last name is spelled S-C-H-L-O-F-F, John Schloff. And if you send him a LinkedIn invite, let him know that you heard him on The Currency. And I'm sure uh, Professor Schloff would be happy to uh, make your acquaintance. So, John, welcome back. Um, I'm excited to kind of follow up. We've been mapping out a little bit product management. We've been talking about what these cross-functional teams look like and the validation process and what kinds of individuals uh, you know, are more apt to succeed in being a product manager. Uh, we could probably talk about that for for weeks, um, but I want to shift gears a little bit and look at you know what makes for a successful uh, product project versus one that struggles to to thrive because I think it's more common that that product efforts end in disappointment. So how would you like how do you ascertain between one that's going to do well and one that's not? Good, Mike. You know one of the topics that uh, we speak to. Uh, is this concept of the augmented uh, product. And there's kind of a really simple spectrum, right? You might have a core product, uh, which are the basic essential elements of your product. And these this is where your features live, right? Uh, then you might have an enhanced product uh, that, wow, uh, I, I can do this with the product, or maybe I'll add this capability to the product. Um, and that's kind of the second stage. And then I think of the third stage as the augmented product. And this is where you really wrap value 
around your offering. And, and interestingly enough, this is where you usually win in the market. You don't usually win in the core or even the enhanced because, you know, competitors are usually pretty close to that. But if you can wrap value around your product in a unique fashion, um, it, it gives you a lot of opportunity uh, to win. You know, I think back to when I worked for a pretty big corporation. I was in the production mail uh, division, and uh, these were, you know, $500,000, $700,000 manufacturing machines. They manufactured mail pieces, right? Think of your credit card statement and so on. So the core product, you know, would take the paper in and it would fold it and insert it in the envelope and so on, right? Um, but our competitors were pretty good at the core product. We were pretty good. We were a market leader, so maybe we were a little bit better, but, you know, we weren't going to dramatically win just on the core product. And then you had the concept of the enhanced product. Well, maybe you want to feed a different form of paper in and instead of stack paper. Now it's roll paper, right? Uh, so that's an enhancement to product. Hey, it brings the, the bill up another 100000 or whatever the number was. So that's good. Um, but we didn't win there either. We won because we really spent time and energy and effort and innovativeness on wrapping value around the product. What we did was we built a software environment that tracked all the elements in the manufacturing process. So we knew where every sheet of paper was in the process. It was at this stage of the machine, that stage of the machine. We also built in manufacturing efficiency software. We knew what machines were performing better than others. We could compare plant A to plant B. So it was the value that we wrapped around the product that really created most of our wins. Uh, so it's, it was a good example of, you know, where do we focus? Do we focus on the core product and make it, you know, uh, 3% faster? Or do we focus on the enhanced product and maybe feed another kind of paper in? Or should we focus on the augmented product and really wrap value around it? And that's where we went. Uh, and that's where we won. So when I, when I hear this, I think of the core product as the table stakes. It's like if it's just the cost of entry and um, you're not differentiating yourself if you're offering a core product, even if it does a little bit faster, cheaper, uh, more elegantly, it's kind of what's expected. How do you avoid the challenge of feature creep? You know, I, I hear like an augmented product and it almost sounds like, well, the engineers figured out a way that this thing could tethered to a satellite and beam information all over, you know, this, I guess it goes back to this validation, but like in that instance of this, this corporation you're talking about, how did they go about the process of discovering what the augmented product should look like? Well, it was, it was through a lot of experience in the field and, and we spent a lot of time working with our customers, also our service technicians and our system engineers who kind of lived and breathed every day with our customers uh, and, and, you know, through kind of exploring across all those different parties, we began to see uh, what the true needs were. And it, and it leads me a, a little bit into workflow, Mike. One of the things that I often would look at uh, is, is the overall workflow that your customer is going through and how is work moving from stage A to B to C to D and so on. And as 
that workflow progresses and as your customer moves through that workflow, where are their challenges? Uh, I worked for another corporation uh, that used to say, look at where you're adding value today and then look three minutes before and three minutes after. So what mm-hmm. happens three minutes before your customer is using your solution and what happens three minutes after? And it was a great way to understand that concept of workflow. And, and again, oftentimes that's where you can add value. Uh, Mike, with this company, what we did was uh, we built uh, some software that helped manage the inflow and outflow of projects. It had nothing to do with the core solution. So again, it was really wrapping value around uh, the core solution. But because we understood where the broader challenges were, we could address that. And, And again, we were winning on, on those marks, not on just, you know, the, the core elements, what, what you would refer to as, you know, the, the basic features. What's well, what I, and I'm going to just assume this is the case, but I would assume that if I'm purchasing your product and now I'm leveraging, I'm using, I'm basing my business on some of the other offerings, you're helping me solve, you know, problems that are earlier in the stream of my workflow, I'm more, you're, you're more embedded. I, I'm probably less likely to go to a competitor now because my systems are based on, you know, it's not like I can just rip your machine out and put the competitor's machine in the flow. It's like my workflow is based on, on your platform now, which means we're married. We're, we're in this together. Absolutely. And, and, uh, switching cost, right? Isn't, isn't that a beautiful thing? If yeah. in fact, if in fact, you know, uh, as you as you work to deliver greater value to your customer, they become more reliant on you. Hopefully, that's you know that win win that we were talking about before. Um, but but for sure, it helps uh, develop loyalty to your offering and to your brand and to your product line. And loyalty generates recurring revenues, and those are all wonderful things in the business world. John, let me ask a question. So we're talking about these large projects, you know, uh, multi-six-figure machines, pieces of equipment. Let's bring it down to another level. Say there's an entrepreneur, they're running an HR agency. You know, it's it's more of a, in a sense, commoditized, highly personal, but it's commoditized. A lot of HR agencies out there, or there's somebody that's uh, got a very small manufacturing, you know, their little contract manufacturing. They're just doing widgets. It's more commoditized. Can these more basic, simple, you know, services that live in a world of very crowded competition, how can they do this? Is this something that they can do? Or is this only the the uh, purview of the apples and the highly engineered products and the military and, and somebody's really big corporations. Oh, you know, I think it's uh, it's available to every player in the marketplace. Uh, you know, here's another one that comes to mind. It's 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 really a pretty simple one. I was taking my car in for service and what's the core reason, you know, kind of the core product? Well, I need to get my car fixed, right? That's the core offering. Uh, the enhancement might be, oh, they have a nice uh, waiting room and I can go get a Keurig coffee and, uh, you know, I'll hang out there for two, three hours while my car is being serviced and they've got a TV I can watch and so on. I, I went to a dealer, local dealer, uh, and as I was dropping my car off and I was thinking, eh, I'm going to have to wait in the 
the nice, you know, enhanced waiting room for a while, I saw a sign that said, hey, uh, you can use the gym down the street for free. Uh, We have a relationship with them. So when you drop your car off, you want to go down to the gym, we'll take you there, I'll pick you up. Uh, And I thought, what a cool idea, right? That's a really simple example of, wow, I'm going to create some differentiation. I'm going to wrap value around the core offer. didn't have anything to do with fixing a car, right? So uh, I think that concept of the augmented product can apply everywhere. And yeah, that's a great example. And I'm guessing somebody went through the process of that figurative three minutes before and three minutes after, like, well, what is it that, that John does every day or tries to do every day that has nothing to do with the maintenance of his car that we might be able to tie into this experience? Oh, most of our clients like to exercise and get a little workout in. Well, someone had to think about that. Right, right. That's, that's an insight. And, and then connect it to what they do. That's really wonderful. That's wonderful. I mean, I'm just happy to get free Wi-Fi and and uh, I used to. I, so I used to. I still drive BMWs, but the um, the dealership was purchased and by another uh, group. But the old owners had uh, an ice cream freezer, like popsicles and fudgesicles. And it wasn't for me, but my kids were always wanting to come with me when the car would be serviced because they wanted to get free ice cream. That was like, that was a big thing in the family. Like, you know, can we come with you to get ice cream? Right. Uh, They're exposing but, yeah. their, their future yeah. buyers early, right? I guess. Yeah. And I guess that's, that was, that's more the enhanced, right? The kids are happy, but um, sure. that's a great example. Yeah. Because I think it's too easy to just say, look, I've been doing this for 30 years. My product, I kind of know it inside and out. There really aren't any opportunities, but you've got to be willing to move first of all, outside of your world and into your customer's world, and you have to be willing to go up and down their experience to find ways that you can meet needs that are outside of your product. Right. Yeah, that's fascinating. So so that was a great example that you gave, um, you know, from your work experience and a great example from your personal. What are some, do you have any examples of where things have gone maybe a little sideways? And, uh, and, and you know, why was that? Yeah, but you know when you're when you're in the product world or in the uh, ideation and incubation of new business world, uh, not every product hits and not every business flies. And you know, there's a lot of data on that. Uh, I certainly had examples. Uh, you know, I had one where I didn't do enough market testing, and we thought the value prop was so clear. Uh, and in fact, it was an existing business space uh, that. that we had a very credible offering in, but we we didn't have a kind of a brand that fit it. So uh, customers or potential customers said, yeah, we do this today. And yeah, we like you for what you do for us today. But I don't think of you for this, you know, this new thing we were trying to mm-hmm. launch. Uh, so you, you've got you've to also assess whether or not the offering that you are seeking to bring to market kind of fits your brand you know it's one of the things as you know as a as a brand pro mike and a marketing pro you got to be vigilant brands have to be vigilant about you know this is what we do and this is this is where we play and you know i think i stepped out of bounds a little bit there you know i had another one that um looked great Uh, market was there we validated we had a great solution we were partnering with someone and we couldn't execute it effectively. Uh, the execution arm uh, had uh, new challenges that arose. So the resources that I needed for launch 
um, that that division president said, can't go there. Uh, I I have a bigger priority right now. So uh, that was a that was kind of a big corporation uh, issue and challenge that is just sure. real. Sometimes you run into those sorts of things. John, I opened up the uh, discussion today saying we're going to talk about why product management is so hot, and I want to I want to ask that directly. I mean, I, a product is huge. We're we're our lives are surrounded by product experience, software, hardware, art, you know, artifacts, well designed, just eating utensils, all the way up to very sophisticated algorithms running in the background, providing us stock quotes and weather, and trying to uh, understand our wants and desires. So I guess you could almost just assume, well, product's so important, but why has product become such a hot uh, discipline in today's world? Well, I, I think product is hot because we as consumers are hot, right? The, the, the customer is on fire. Uh, if you look at the power between an organization and the customer in the market, it's really shifted over the last couple of decades, right? And a lot of that, I believe has come from the transparency of information. Um, brands used to be kind of created and told. So uh, marketers used to be uh, brand dictators. This is what my brand is, right? Today, brands are built through that narrative between the marketplace and the brand. And, and it's that narrative that really uh, builds that. So that that power of the customer I think is driving uh, more focus on the product because if the product isn't amazing in terms of what it does, uh, everyone knows. I mean, the social voice today is huge. So when was the last time a millennial bought something without, you know, checking reviews first? Uh, so product is really important, I think, because products have to be better today to win and, to win, you know, they have to really be in tune with the jobs and the pains and the gains associated with the, the very specific target market you're going after. Uh, and that takes a lot of work. Uh, and, and it's really driving more focus and more energy into uh, excellence in that, in that part of uh, business operations. So, so, so consumers are demanding, ex expecting, desiring more products. Consumers are more empowered. And uh, our, so our expectations have grown and our ability to acquire and interact with products is becoming more and more. Uh, and, and so that's causing kind of a boom of product. Is that, and that's kind of what I'm, uh, I'm hearing from you. Um, it, it, well, go ahead, correct. Is that, is that what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, it's not just a boom of more products. It's a boom of better products. I mean, you know. It's right. It's forcing companies to be more sophisticated in their product uh, thinking. Yeah, think about, Mike, think about the bugs that you used to have and deal with in a software environment 10 years ago. And, and if they occurred today, uh, you, you wouldn't. You wouldn't oh, stand for that, point. right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That being the case, uh, I think of like the stock market and bubbles. Are, are, is there the chance of a product bubble? I mean, is this thing going to continue to grow? Is it going to stabilize? I mean, is there a point where the consumer says, whoa, 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 this is... Like, I know there's pushback on things like algorithms and personal data, and this ties into product because products are leveraging all this. And um, is there a potential for a bubble? You know, I don't see a bubble, but I, I think that there will be ongoing um, tuning 
that has to occur because of some of the the issues that are arising. Look, look at the focus that uh, is on privacy right now, you know, and I think that's a real issue. And I think it's a big issue and, and firms have to uh, truly understand what the market demands. You know, there, there's a lot of value that can be delivered through uh, information that's captured about us, but there's also kind of that balance that there's only so much information that, uh, should be captured perhaps, right? Uh, so I, I think organizations are kind of going through the process of learning more about how to strike that balance. So I don't see a bubble, but I, I do see a, an ongoing tuning, you know, associated with things like that. Sure, sure. What, um, what companies do you feel get products right? If you were to say, hey, here's a couple examples, or what What do you show your students? What do you tell your students to look at if they want to get a picture of a company that really gets product right? You know, I think different products do different things well. Um, you know, when we talk about competition, sometimes we'll start with the traditional elements of competition. Is this organization a cost leader? Uh, are they a product leader? Or are they all about customer intimacy? And you know, a cost leader might be Walmart, a product leader might be 3M, a customer intimacy leader might be uh, Ritz-Carlton, right? So uh, those are three traditional avenues to, you know, kind of select and be competitive along those lines. And the traditional theory would, would suggest that, you know, you, you have to stay really focused. It you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna swim in this lane of being a cost player, that's your lane. But it's also uh, interesting to see those that kind of bust that mold. And you mentioned Blue Ocean earlier, Mike. Uh, and the Blue Ocean strategy came out a while ago. It's a great book. I'd recommend it to your uh, to your uh, audience. And it really looks at how companies today so often compete in what they call a bloody red ocean, right? And this is where your competitor does this, so I need to do it a little bit better. And they they respond this way, and then I've got to respond this way. And it, and it margins erode, and how much more customer value is really uh, built, right? In the blue ocean, you look across the key factors, and, and you make definitive decisions. What of those key factors should I eliminate? What do I reduce uh, effort and energy on? Uh, what do those factors need to be pumped up? And then what factors need to be innovated and created and brought forth? Uh, so Blue Ocean is all about doing those four things. And, you know, uh, the classic example is uh, Cirque du Soleil, right? Look at the traditional circus business. You know, uh, unfortunately, I think it's out of business now, right? The two primary players um, uh, don't even uh, exist anymore. But Cirque du Soleil is on fire. And what did they do? They they eliminated aspects of what might have been a circus. They reduced certain elements. They raised elements. And then they brought entirely new concepts to that to that space. And they created a market. So... You know, Blue Ocean would suggest don't compete today in the existing market. Create and own a market. 
so uh, that's a good example of that. And who do you, I mean, Cirque du Soleil is a, is a fantastic example, but are there some other companies uh, that are well known that you would say have been able to do that in the recent number of, you know, two, three years? You know, uh, another example in the book has to do with the wine industry. You know, the traditional wine is, industry was uh, all from Europe and French wines, and they were very complex and amazingly diverse, and there's prestige in the in the different vineyards, and they were very high-priced. And then, you know, when the California wines got uh, pretty strong a while ago, they were kind of competing inside that red ocean and they adjusted, you know, their prices were maybe a little bit less. The, the vineyard prestige wasn't quite up there. Uh, the, the, the wine itself wasn't quite as complex and so on. And, and then you had some of the, the new uh, organizations that came out, uh, yellowtail, you know, and I'm not saying that's oh, my sure. favorite wine, yeah. but what did they do? They said, you know what? Um, we're not going to be complex. We're not going to talk about vineyards. We're not going to um, uh, price um, medium or high. We're going to bring the price down and we're going to deliver something that's new to the market. This is an easy drinking wine and your choice yeah. is easy and so on. So it's just another example of, you know, an industry that that uh, some of the players kind of took a different uh, approach and, and didn't, sure. didn't swim sure. in that red ocean, right? So if I've got uh, a listener that's saying, look, I um, would love to help move my company into more of a product stance, you know, we're a manufacturer, we're a healthcare company, we've been focused on our, our, our knitting, and I want to start innovating. I want to start getting better at, at uh, understanding our customers and providing goods and services that, are, uh, that, that kind of put us in that blue ocean. What are some initial steps that you would advise a company that doesn't have a lot of product experience do to start putting their toe in the water? Because clearly, not every business can say, look, we're going to drop a million dollars, we're going to staff up and uh, just build this team, and then we'll go from there. Well, how can they test the waters and start to get a little comfortable with product? Yeah, so first I'd take a step back, Mike, because your your product strategy, need, it needs to be based on your business strategy, right? So take a step back and understand what role does product play in your overall business strategy, and then invest in, in your product accordingly. You know, if you're, again, if you're a cost player, uh, your investment might be um, a little bit tighter. If, if you're seeking to establish uh, uniqueness in the marketplace, then your investment might be a little bit bigger. The second thing you want to do is you want to really understand your core competencies. You know, what is it that makes you unique, uh, makes you unique and special? Uh, What's your special sauce, in fact, right? What do you have that no one else has and that you can deploy? Right. Um, and, and I'm not one for technology push, but, but I am one for truly understanding what your core competencies are all about. The third stage is I'd be crystal clear on who you're going after. Who is it that you're going to serve? Uh, uh, and, and be very finite about that. And once you make that decision, now you can begin to focus on deeply understanding what that target market's needs are. You know, what jobs do they have to get done? And what are the pains of, of, of working along that job today, either not getting it done or getting it done marginally? And if you could improve that, um, what, would, what would be something that would really wow them? 
so, you know, it, it kind of comes back to truly understanding who it is that you serve and, and how you can deliver value to them. My guest today has been John Schloff. He is an executive professor at the University of Rochester's Simon School of Business. John, thank you so much for joining me today on The Currency. Mike, it's been a pleasure. Uh, It's always fun to talk about product, and uh, it's been enjoyable to work with you on this. If you want to connect with with John, you can do so on LinkedIn. Just look for John Schloff. His last name is spelled S-C-H-L-O-F-F and uh, send him an invite. I'm sure he'd like to connect with you there. And if you haven't done so uh, already, make sure to follow the show. You can find me on Twitter. You can find me on LinkedIn. Just look for Mike Gaston. And uh, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, anywhere that fine podcasts are provided. Guys, I love you all, and I'll catch you in the next episode.